It's a very famous battle in Scripture that, that you've heard of many times, I'm sure. It's a battle with a great villain. It's a battle with a great hero. Israel was lined up on one side of this valley, and the Philistines were lined up on one side of the other valley. They sent their champion down, who was a giant. Day after day after day, for 40 days, nothing happening. Day after day, the battle lines drew up, and this champion of theirs named Goliath would shout out this invitation to come and to fight him. Why should all the armies go together? Let's just do this mano a mano, one man against another man, and we'll settle this. So there was a battlefield, there was a battle line that was drawn, and day after day, though, nobody did anything, including King Saul, who sat there on one side of the valley with the rest of the army who would come out and tremble whenever the challenge was put forth by Goliath. Day after day, for 40 days, until another young kid essentially shows up, a young man shows up who also was going to be a king at one point. So there's two kings on the side of this battlefield. We're very different from each other when it gets to the core of who they are as individuals. So there's two different kinds of people that were on Israel's side. The Philistines were ready to battle every day. They came out, they had their champion chosen. But there was two kinds of people once David showed up. There were those who were, who were willing to just sit there on the sidelines to kind of hope that somebody else would kind of engage in the battle, that somebody else would step up, that somebody else would step forward and begin to, to take on the battle. And then there was a guy named David who had a completely different heart, completely different heart than the guy Saul who was sitting in his, I guess you would call it a temporary throne, if you will. We're going to take a look at 1 Samuel 17, just to look at the beginning of, of how all this gets, gets started. In 1 Samuel 17, verse 1, it describes the, the scene that I mentioned to you, and the people drew up in, in battle lines. This went on for day after day. Again, for 40 days. In verse 16, it says that for 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And at this point, you see that Jesse, the, the, the father of David, sends his son out to the battle line to check on his brothers, sends some bread and, and cheese with him to go out and to make sure about how's the battle going. How are your brothers doing? Go ahead and check on your brothers. David gets there, leaves his things with the baggage guy, and wants to really see what's happening. He's really interested in the battle. Wants to see what's happening. This guy seems to be, be a bit fearless. And it says in verse, well, I'll let you catch up with me here, in verse 24, Goliath had just come out and made his challenge one more time. Spoke the same words, and David heard him, and it says, All the men of Israel, when they saw the men, fled from him and were much afraid. 
It says, And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. This guy has come all on his own to defy Israel. And of course, you know, no one has gone forward to do anything, but the king is even willing to, to reward whoever does do it with no taxes. When you served a king, he got whatever he wanted. And to be tax-free would be a huge deal. To be able to, I believe it was, he was offering his daughter in marriage. So he'll give him his daughter. He'll, he'll be a, a free house. That means tax-free, essentially, in Israel. That wasn't really David's greatest concern. I'm sure it was kind of cool to think through that. But David had a different heart in mind. Saul, if we were to compare the two kings, Saul had this mentality of survival of holding on to what they had, of living to see another day. But David had a different kind of pain on the inside. When you look at the end of verse 26, it says, For who is this <coughs> excuse me, uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Uncircumcised Philistine means that you know, circumcision was a sign of covenant. It was a sign of promise. It was a sign of who you belong to. This was someone that did not belong to God who was coming up against the very people who were the apple of God's eye. Who does this guy think that he is? David's heart was about God. David's heart was about his renown, about how amazing and, and great God is. And David's heart was clearly different than Saul's when you look at what happened later on. First of all, no one, again, no one was going forward. Nobody stepped up. But until David, David's been asking around, he's been talking to different people, saying, hey, what's going to happen, what's going to happen? And everyone finds out that David apparently appears to be interested in taking on this fight and engaging in this battle. And so word gets out and he gets drugged before Saul. And Saul says, hey, you know, I'm not sure you can really do this, you're just a boy, but David's mentality is, I have taken on, let's look at his actual words, verse 37, this is 1 Samuel 17, 37, and David said, the Lord, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Again, it wasn't about his skill. All these great skills that he had to take down the, the, the lion and the bear was about the Lord, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion. Later on, as you know the story, of course, they go into battle and David says, I don't need Saul's armor. He picks up, he's got his sling, he's got five smooth stones because the story in the background is, is that uh, there was an understanding and you see it later on in scripture that Goliath had brothers. David went into battle, engaged, ready to take on Goliath and possibly his brothers who saw Goliath dead running to the battlefield. That's not what happened. Everybody took off. Israel all of a sudden decided to, to rally, got excited because someone engaged the battle, and they went into battle and won. You know the rest of that story. But what's interesting, again, is we're looking at the difference in the heart here between David and Saul. David goes down into battle against this Philistine, and this Philistine, Goliath, says to him, why are you coming at me like a dog? Am I a dog that you come at me basically with, you know, with sticks? I'm this big warrior and you're this little kid with a slingshot, basically. 
I've got this big sword and this armor that no one else can barely carry. It's so heavy. But David says to him this. He says, you come to me with, with sword and with a spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defiled. And later on, to look at more of his, let's just keep reading in verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. You think, man, big words for a little boy. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day, all the rest of you, to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know this, right? That there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. His desire is that everyone would realize who God truly is. Who does this guy think he is? Does he not realize who he's going up against? Everyone this day will realize and know and see who God is. And you almost wonder if you were to sit down, David, and interview him after the fact, what he meant by that. You would think he's probably just talking about the Philistines. But I think he might have been talking about everybody. Because all the Israelites were sitting on the sidelines for 40 days doing nothing, just shaking in their boots, not remembering and realizing who the one true God is. This morning, I want us to talk about what it means to really engage. What it really means to, to choose between sitting on the sidelines and actually getting involved in the battle. What does that mean? I want to take a look at another verse to kind of set the stage for this as well. In John chapter 4, verses 23 through 24, we have this interesting interaction between Jesus and this woman that he finds at a well as he goes to sit down and rest. He goes and he's talking to this woman, and as he gets to the end of this conversation, we find in John 4, 23, that he's describing to her the kind of worshipers that, that God is looking for. What kind of people is God looking for? What, what, what kind of hearts? How do you, what kind of worshipers does the Father seek? When you think what a Christian is, what does a Christian look like, essentially? And this kind of sets the tone in a way, and he says this, verse 23, John 4, 23. <clears throat> but the hour is coming, in fact, and, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, we could dig into those two things in a deep way, but but just in, in general, I think what we're talking about here is it's, it's one thing to know the truth about God. It's one thing to know a lot of facts about who He is. But it's another thing to worship Him and to know Him in spirit. 
It means at your very heart, at the very core of who you are, there is this hunger, there is this desire, there's a worshiper's heart. There's a, a heart of David that says, who are you to go against this God? Who are you to not realize who he really is? Every moment of life, I realize that this is the God that I serve, and I'm going to engage with that. God is looking for those that are not just going to know information, but are willing to let it be transformation. True worshipers are those that don't just know a lot of good stuff about Jesus, that know a lot of stories in the Bible, but they are those that are, are willing to engage in battle. There are those that are willing to not just sit on the sidelines from the outside, but to enter into what the Christian life is. Because the Christian life is a battlefield. Living for Christ, that some days can be easy, but the most of the days it's not. Because there is always some kind of battle taking place. And I'm not talking about a physical battle. I'm talking about spiritual battles. I'm talking about different battles that are taking place that God is bringing about change in your life. Things are always happening that you need, can choose to engage in or not, that God will take you and transform you and change you. There is a battle every day, every moment, that you can choose to engage in or not. And if we're going to get on the, the high spiritual level here, kind of Ephesians level, if you will, thinking about spiritual warfare, Satan's aware of that. And when he sees the challenges coming, he's going to throw down as well and take the opportunities that he has to not allow that growth to take place, but rather defeat. Or to see the struggle as, as nothing but defeat. But there needs to be this desire that we have to engage in battle. And I want you to say this phrase with me, welcome the struggle. One more time, welcome the struggle. You need to welcome the struggle. Literally, welcoming the struggle, engaging in battle is life. Part of growth, true growth really happening is welcoming the struggle. Nothing changes without struggle. Things, things come forward by God. Challenges are, are given by God that if we leave unaddressed if we don't tackle, if we don't challenge, that we remain the same. David had an opportunity that day. No one had, he wasn't a part of the army. No one had invited him to go down and to, to take on Goliath. What prompted him into that battle was a heart for God, but he took on the challenge. And God, from that point forward, launched him on this amazing path where he actually ended up becoming the king of Israel. And to this day, Jesus actually comes from the line of David. There's all kinds of background that go to David. God said that he would continue to bless the line of David. He said about David that David was a man, you probably know this part, after what? He was a man after God's own heart. Because there's other stories about Saul that we don't have time to dig into, but Saul was not that kind of man. Saul was about himself. Saul was about Saul. There's this story that's told that you've already read in our Bible readings where, where Saul was getting ready to go into battle. And before he, uh, 
was going into battle, he was waiting on Samuel, the priest, to show up and to inquire of God and to, to ask of God's blessing. And so there was a sacrifice that would have taken place, and there would have been prayer that would have taken place. God, should we go and fight? I think it was the Amorites. I'm probably wrong. Should we fight them or not? Well, Saul just kept getting antsy. Couldn't wait for the preacher to show up. Sorry about that. I'm never late. Couldn't wait for the preacher to show up. And he started realizing that the people involved in his army were starting to kind of lose their nerve and leave. So it's like his army is getting smaller and smaller. He's thinking, we need to go ahead. <coughs> we need to do something now. If we don't do something now, we're going to lose. And so he went ahead and performed the sacrifice and did priestly duties that he was not supposed to do. And as soon as he finishes the very, very end of it, guess who shows up? There's the preacher. What did you do, Saul? Saul was worried about himself. Saul was worried about losing. Saul didn't have a heart after God. He didn't have faith that no matter how many men were left remaining because he waited on God, that, that God would have brought about the victory no matter how many men were with him. But there has to be this need to engage in battle, this need to welcome the resistance. The resistance is necessary for growth. You see, being a Christian or a follower of Jesus, it's not a religion in that you, you hold these, these set of beliefs. Jesus actually asks something of us. Being a Christian is not holding this list of things that I, I believe and know. He asks us to do something with it. He asks us to engage in the battle. In Luke 9.23, you've heard me share this verse so many different times. Luke 9.23 through through 27 says this, he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he doesn't say let him believe this list of things, he says let him deny himself and take up his cross. We of course know what happens on a cross, <coughs> death. It's about setting yourself aside and it doesn't just happen once. There are times as Christians that we think about battles we've engaged in in the past. I remember the time where I went witnessing and I told this person about Jesus. And I remember the time I went on this mission trip. We start talking about past victories, past things. But what's happened today? What happened yesterday? What, what happened even last week or, or last month? How about this past year? There might have been a time that you were like David and you ran into the valley of Allah after Goliath, but lately... There's not much happening. He says, deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. See, this isn't, this isn't a one and done kind of question, this engaging in the battle. This, this growth is something that's supposed to take place daily. I don't know about you, but I can point to me and say, I know that it has to happen daily because there's a lot within me. There's a lot of battles that need to happen because there's a lot of lance that still needs to be changed. Take up your cross daily and follow me. It says, for, for whoever would save his life will lose it. You try to take it into your own hands, it doesn't make sense. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. There's this mentality that if you're willing to rush into the valley, something great's going to happen. David was willing to risk his life and to go in for the sake of God, not knowing how it was going to turn out. I'm sure he actually did. He had faith that God was going to pull him through no matter what. But that was his heart. And there's this... 
there's all kinds of these flip-flop type of things that don't seem to make sense to regular people. But when you put on your spiritual mindset, you realize that he says, don't, if you, if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. There's this mentality, if you will give it to him, if you take what you have and you give it to him, he will bless it. Because it says, what, what does it profit? A man, if he gains the whole world and, and loses or forfeits himself, what good is it if you sat on the battle line, didn't go into Goliath and went about the rest of your days carrying bread and cheese and, you know, taking on a, an occasional lion and a bear, you know, whatever the things David did. Maybe threw a slingshot at trees, and you know, who I think he was a, let's say he was a Benjamite. But the Benjamites were the ones that were just known for eagle eye accuracy with those things. But he would have missed out on what God really has for him, right? What good is it to have gained all that other kind of stuff? But it says here, forfeit or lose yourself. God has a, has a reason. He has a purpose for us. So there's, a, there's a deeper thing to life. If we don't engage with this, if we don't engage in what God has for us, we don't know life. We've missed the boat. We're going to have to keep moving on. But he asks something of all of us. And what we have to do is to welcome the struggle. Say that with me again. Welcome the struggle. Now, welcoming the struggle, again, as I mentioned, is not a one-and-done thing. You have to welcome the struggle over the, over the long haul. But if you welcome the struggle over the long haul, that's going to take something from you. It's going to take some depth. Again, Saul and David were, were two very different kings. What I find interesting about them is that they both made some huge mistakes. After that moment that I told you about, it wasn't long after that... that the kingdom was taken away from Saul, and it says, God, Sam, through Samuel, said, I'm looking, Saul, you're not going to be king anymore because I'm looking for someone who has my best interests at heart, who has a heart after me. That's really what I need. Now, two different hearts, but even with two different hearts, what's interesting about it is that David and Saul both made huge mistakes. Saul made that kind of mistake, for example. David, we, we know about David, made huge mistakes. David committed murder, he committed adultery. That whole story right there in particular was just horrendous. But even after that point, David was still considered a man after God's own heart. Even in the midst of huge mistakes along the way, when it comes to honoring God, but only one, David, okay, had the spiritual depth to continue to fight future battles. God's not looking for you to be perfect because you're not. And you never will be except, as we know, the rest of the story through Christ. It's only because of the grace of God. It's His. We have to keep reminding us, though God's called us to live a holy life, it's not our holiness. It's His. When we try to do it ourselves, we're never going to be good enough. The good enough part always comes from Him. We, we have a difficult time wrestling and understanding that. But David and Saul, they both made mistakes, but the real difference between them was this spiritual depth. <clears throat> David knew what it meant to go into battle and to get back up again. 
And the only way that you can get back up again is to trust in Christ, to trust in the Lord, to know His heart, to know the power of God, to know that He is with you, that He's the only thing that matters. Saul was not like that. Saul was about himself. Saul was willing to to go ahead and just skip over what God had to say to hurry up and get things done so he could rush into battle. He tried to take things into his own hands. David had a heart, he had a spiritual depth that he was able to welcome future battles. As we think about depth for a moment, we, there's a story of, in Scripture we've heard many times about the, the sower and the seed and, and which, which plants did, you know, which seeds did better than others. And of course, we think about that healthy seed. The healthy seed was the one that had depth, right? That had deep what? Deep, deep roots. Now, it's interesting to look at the language of that passage. Throw that up there for me, David, in Luke 8, 15. It says, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart. <coughs> they hold on to the truth tightly with an honest and good heart. An honest heart is tough. I mean, just... You know how difficult sometimes it is to even be honest with yourself, right? You ever have those struggles? Why do I really want to do this? Why do I really think this way? Why do I really feel this way about that individual? Why do I, feel, you know, there's so many different scenarios that come to your head. As for that in the good soul, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart. They take it in and they swallow it. They chew it up. They think through it. God Deal with me. There's a, there's a passage of Scripture that says, Lord, if there be any wicked way within me, would you, would you reveal it? Would you show me? Would you help me to understand? Because as the human heart is desperately wicked, who can understand it? Who can know it? I don't even know why we do some of the stupid things we do sometimes. But this person, again, they hold it fast in an honest and good heart. And it says this, and they bear fruit with what? Patience. How patient are you? We know that Saul, again, was not patient in the story we shared, was he? Paul, people are leaving. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And freaks out and, and, and does the unthinkable. Growth, depth comes when we have the patience to let God move within us to, to change us. There's a great psalm in the Bible that, that shows us David's heart right after he, he made his, his biggest mistake. And that's in Psalm 51. I want you to turn there just for a moment. I want you to consider this aspect of where, where depth comes from. <clears throat> psalm 51, this is David's heart. It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your, to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, another big word for sin. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It's all he can see, right? That's where his heart is. He can't even get past it. You know the difference between people that are truly repentant or not, right? It just, it weighs on them. 
And this is how David is. He says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. There it is again. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Something about the core, the heart, right? Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness and let the, the bones that you have broken rejoice. There's this aspect of brokenness, this contrite heart, this, this brokenness. Let the bones, I love that line, that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. It's a heart again. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me <coughs> the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. So he has this this broken spirit. And then later on, after that, after he's come to the bottom, when he's realized the things that he's done, he says, then if, I, if you'll do this for me, Lord, if you'll cleanse my heart, if you'll get me in the right place, this is the standing back up part again for the next battle. It says, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. I'm going to show other people. I'm going to teach other people because of what I've been through, right? Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud as worship right there, right? Sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. It says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. Quite the opposite of what Saul did. Saul, Saul thought that if he just took care of the sacrifice and he was, things, everything would be good. That's not what. Just because you go through the motions, in other words, doesn't mean that God's pleased. So you will not be pleased with the burnt offering, but he says this. This is key. Hold on to this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God can do something with, a, with brokenness. You can do something with a, with a heart of worship. And that's what David had. D the, the majority of the Psalms are written by David. David, David was a worshiper. David was, you know, he was the kind of guy that would dwell on the things of God. Which is why it got to him so much when he saw Goliath. How can you say these things? I know who God is. Why are you guys standing around doing nothing? David understood what it meant to worship God. God, depth comes from, God uses and, and causes depth in the midst of that broken spirit and that, that heart of worship. That's really a key thing to hold on to. Because, you know, we would typically say that depth comes from studying, right? And applying God's word. But you can't actually do that without those two things. Without this aspect of brokenness. 
without this heart of worship. If you don't have those things, it's just, it's just going through the motions. It's really, there should be no arrogant Christians. Those two words, <laughs> they don't go together. They don't make any sense whatsoever. As usual, I have more, more to talk about than I have time. <coughs> I want to mention a couple, just one more thing about depth. You know, this, this aspect of a broken spirit, this heart of worship, of course, is this, essentially this idea of a, of a, of a teachable heart. If, you heart. if your heart is in that place, if it's soft, if it's moldable, if it's teachable, right, you can tell the difference. You know, with your kids, sometimes you want to show them something, and they, you ever try to teach your kids something? They're like, oh, I got, I got it, Dad. All right, I got it. I know what I'm doing. And, and, and that's really hard because you're like, well, no, you don't know what you're doing. You, know, you could jump in and say, this is how you do it, and they probably aren't listening. Or they go ahead and do it, and they make a mistake and, and break it or, you know, whatever. Okay? Um, but this depth comes from a this teachable heart. If we have a teachable heart, the rest of this will fit. It'll work. There's a passage in Hosea that says that my, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So when you consider that side of depth, if you have the heart in the right place, you might not have the knowledge. You know, might not know about God's grace. You might not know about His forgiveness. You might not know about what took place here. There is, there is a need, I don't want to ever get away from that, to study and to understand what God has to say. And there is a heart of worship that will develop and grow deeper the more time that you study and you spend with God. Isn't it true that when you, when you have a hobby, for example, the more you understand something, the more time you study something, the more you get out of it, right? You know, there are people that, that, that enjoy football. There are people that enjoy baseball or whatever. And the more they know about it, like, well, did you know that such and such, last year he has more yardage than the year before, and he's the only player that does this, that, and the other leg. And everyone's like, oh, cool. Okay, at least the guys anyway, unless you're, you're into that, right? You know, you could probably tell us all kinds of stuff about Tennessee and this, that, and the other. And you have an appreciation, you know, for, 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 for that team or for different sports or for different players. You know, for me, of course, you guys know I'm a coffee nut. And, you know, I've done everything from roast coffee to, you know, by myself, you know, the different kinds. I've got all kinds of coffee makers and crazy stuff like that. I'm into cigars, whiskey. You know, you're like, okay, all these crazy bad habits, right? But you know, the more you, I learn about those things, the more I appreciate it. It's not just a, you know, it's not just a uh, something to smoke, for example. It's like, okay, well, you know what's behind that. You know where those leaves came from. You know how many hands touched that cigar to make it happen. Do you, do you know this? Do you know that? And the more you know about something, the more you appreciate it. Even more, the more you know about someone, right? The more you appreciate them. That's why fellowship is so important. That's the kind of thing that bonds us together as a church. It's the kind of thing that encourages one another. It's the kind of thing that draws us deeper to each other and, and most importantly, deeper to the Lord. 
the more we know about him, we have a greater fascination. Man, look at what it says here. I didn't realize that. And some of y'all are, are experiencing that. I know, I've, you, know, I've, I know you, you and Madonna lately have been doing some, some really cool Bible study together. And so there's different things you guys share that bounce off of each other. It's like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think about that. Did you realize this? Did you realize that? And that continual growth, that continual freshness, you know, is something that just causes us to have a deeper and deeper love of the Lord. Let's take a quick look at 2 Timothy, chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3.12, just want to wrap up the section with this, and we'll be close to done here. Indeed, you know, this is part of the battle again. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know, you can't expect to be a Christian and it not be tough. You can't stay in the sidelines. It says, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood. He's actually talking to Timothy here, another believer, that you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. This is important which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that what the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. That's why Scripture is so important. It's so holistic to, to every aspect of our life. So, here's our three points for the day. I'm going to give you number three in a second. Number one, welcome the struggle. Say that with me. Number two, to remember depth is to dig deep. Let's try that again. Dig deep. All right, welcome the struggle. Dig deep. And I just want to look at one last passage. I want to make it quick. John 15. John 15, we have this <coughs> famous passage of the true vine, the vine, and the branches. Engaging in the battle, digging deep. You know, this, the whole point of the song, Love, Love is a Battlefield, is that truly, I believe, truly loving God is this, is this, and you know in your relationships, the relationships are, are a battle that you're, you're, you're trying to grow closer and there's things that, that, that should be there that aren't there yet and you're growing. And the fruit that needs to take place in our life needs to be developed. And it's a battle to get there. Love is, for example, that's, uh, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is, rather, what? Who knows it? Love, kindness, patience, gentleness, self-control. I know we're missing some, and I, I should be able to spit it out, but it's not. Joy, yeah, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I had to get that rhythm in my head. All those things, that's the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, if we were going to consider the other passage, involves some patience. It's going to take some time for that to come. But that 
that being developed is a battle. It's a, it's a struggle that, that God will bring things purposely into our lives to challenge us, to change us. He brings the resistance, and I, I hate to keep bringing this up because I know you're tired of it. I am too. But you know, the whole working out thing. You do not get bigger muscles. You do not get stronger unless you're pushing against something, unless there is resistance. It does me no good if I'm going to go to the bench press and put on 25 pounds. No good. I can do that all day long, 25 pounds. But if I put on some heavy weight, some stuff that causes me to struggle and yet still overcome, I get even stronger. And if you've been to the gym, if you've worked out before, you know that after a while, if you're going to keep getting stronger, what do you have to do? You have to put on more weight. You have to run faster. God brings the struggle. He brings extra resistance to shape us, to mold us, and to make us stronger. And we see that in John 15 because he says that, that he is the vine and we are the branches. And then he says this very uncomfortable thing that, you know, there are those that are not producing fruit, which because they don't have the Spirit of God, I believe he's referring to unbelievers. But there are those who are producing fruit as well. But if you're producing fruit, he says he's going to do a particular thing. That he's going to prune you. You know what pruning is? It's cutting. It's cutting a piece of the branch away. And that, in the, in the metaphorical sense, sounds really painful, doesn't it? But there has to be that kind of pain. There has to be that kind of resistance that will cause us to grow and to produce more fruit. And in John chapter 15, at the end of verse 5, <coughs> it says, well, well, just read 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, whoever lives in me, right? Everything is there. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And the rest of this says, For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now when we typically read that, I think we believe that's spiritual things. That apart from Jesus, we can do no, spirit, no, no spiritual things. But literally, if you understand the rest of Scripture, nothing. Not just talking about spiritual things, talking about your entire life. Apart from him, you can do nothing. A branch not attached to the vine is dead. It might look like it's alive for a period of time, but it's dead. You can't do anything. Every good thing, the Bible says, comes from the Lord. You, you know, I can't work at Oliver Gospel Mission without the Lord. I don't, I don't have the strength to walk without the Lord. My heart doesn't beat without the Lord. I can't breathe without the Lord. I have no oxygen without Him. Colossians chapter 1 says He holds everything together. To talk to my chemistry son, he would spit it out with all the atoms. Everything would just fly apart. It, wouldn't, it, would, it would be the end. There is nothing that we can do without Him. I'm going to jump to the end. The point of all of this is that there, he, he's talking about this closeness. This, this idea of him abiding in us and us abiding in him. He says, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. 
And he says this, these things I've spoken to you, this is in verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Joy is that, that, that feeling, right, that overtakes all emotion. It's not really a feeling. It's this understanding. It's everything is great. Everything is peaceful. Everything is good. It's, this, it's what everyone's seeking. It's what everyone's hunting for and spending lots of money on and thinking they have it and they don't really have it. And, you know, it's in this relationship and they think it's there and it's not there. Joy only comes from him. But we have to understand that and realize that. And what's really cool at the end of this passage, and we're going to be done right here, in verse 15, This is the difference, in other words, between the sideline and running into the battle. This is the difference between religion and a relationship. He says this in verse 15, No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. They share something similar in previous passages. What he's saying here is that, look, you are not, as a Christian, you are not on the outside. You know, it's, it's like this yesterday, by the way. I'm a, I'm a, uh, Hannah is pregnant. She is going, I found out yesterday, she is going to have a son. So uh, now I know how to pray. His name is going to be John Mitchell McCants. So I can stay, I can pray, Lord, please be with, with Mitch, is what he's going to go by, rather than, Lord, be with this child, this boy or girl. I didn't know how to pray, you know. But I found out yesterday, and we had this great grand reveal, and they did something cool I'd never seen before. They did a burnout. And so they had this car that just revved up and, you know, spinning out the wheels, smoke going everywhere. And then when they did, a certain color flew out, and of course it was blue, and everyone's like, <gasps> you know, oh my goodness, you know, so just a really, really cool moment. But you know, during that time, something happened. I'd never met Drew's parents before. Drew's parents were strangers to me. I could have learned all kinds of information about Drew, but what happened that day was, you know what, our kids are having a baby. You are no longer a stranger. Your family. There's a big difference there, isn't there? Let's see, when God is, is sharing this passage and Jesus is talking about this, he's saying, look, you are not on the sidelines. You know, what, you are not my servant any longer. You are my friend. And another part of Scripture, he says that we're his brothers and sisters. That we are, another part of Scripture says that we are children of God, that we're a part of the family of God. It's not this outside thing, it's this inside thing. We've been brought to the inner circle. We're in, we're a part of the family, we're close, abide with me, be close to me. In other words, the last point is hold on to love. Hold on to grace. Because that's what holds it all together because you'll do anything for family. There is nothing that my son or daughter can ever do to me that will change the fact that I'm their dad, that will stop me from loving them. I remember a time with my own dad, I can't even remember what it was about, that I punched my dad in the face. 
I'm embarrassed to say that. But my dad and I are like this. I love my father. Do I regret that? Yeah, I do. There's nothing with family. We get it. We understand what family is. We understand what family means. There is nothing that happens that you're, you're gone, you're done. If, if, if you do think that way, you're very unusual. You're part of the 1% in the negative way. I'm not talking finances today. You catch my drift? Jesus says you're no longer a stranger. You're no longer on the outside. You're on the inside. So we need to engage the battle every day. We need to dig deep, and we need to embrace love. We need to understand that we're children of God. That grace is always going to be the foundation. He's always going to be rooting for you as you run into the valley of Allah. He's always going to be your father. He's always going to be there to offer you grace and to pick you back up. But you do need that spiritual depth to stand again. Because you have an opportunity. You know, we've all had people in the family, <clears throat> the family that have chosen to be close or have turned, the, turned their back. And our heart aches for that situation. Man, I really wish that that relationship would be fixed. It doesn't change the fact that they're son or daughter. But man, what they could have, you know. We could be going to the movies together. We could be going, going out to eat today. We could be <clears throat> hanging out around the campfire. We could, you know, we can live life. We can abide together. That's what abiding means, you know. I think Jesus is saying, look, if you, unless you do that, you're missing out. You're not grasping what life is. Don't be on the sidelines. Come in here and hang out. Come in here and be with me. Come in here and understand real joy. It can't be from the outside. It can't be a task. It can't be a religion and a list of beliefs. It's family. I love you. Come on. You understand that the love is a battlefield kind of thing when it comes to family, don't you? Because there are relationships you fight for on a daily basis in different ways. That's love. And God's been fighting for you since the very beginning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love and for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that we're not on the outside, we're on the inside, we're family. That you no longer call us servants, you call us friends, you call us brothers and sisters and we're children of God. We're a part of the family. Lord, help us to grasp that. Help us to understand that. Lord, help us to, to engage in that. Help us to dig deep. Help us to love you with all, every aspect of our heart. Lord, we, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this moment together. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. amen.